Welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming out on a cold... Well, actually, it's nice to have a cold night um, and a wet night. This is my second talk. The first talk, um, for those who were here last year, the last talk of last year, didn't get recorded. So Tony and I did a, <laughs> a, a second attempt. And that's, I think that's up on the website now, isn't it? No, it will be. Okay, it will be. So this comes up, this is a, the second talk, if you haven't been to the first talk. But I think it you'll, uh, won't be too disadvantaged if you haven't been at the first talk. And basically, I want to, uh, the theme of my talks is this battle. It's a battleground. What is a mind? What is a person? What is a soul? seems to be something under a lot of attack in recent centuries even. It's not something that uh, I think many of us are too sure about anymore. Soul used to be something poetic, something noble, something grand. Now it seems just to be another machine, a biological machine, but still just a machine. Something that gets glitches in it, physical glitches, which are uh, um, addressed by physical means to try and uh, alleviate problems. The, the soul is not a grand thing anymore. I've and I've I've used as a um, as a heading for my talks. Is there a ghost in the machine? Which was a phrase called by a guy called Gilbert Ryle in the mid twentieth century. We'll get on to his quote a bit later on, but I think there's a real, there's a huge battle going on for the soul of humanity. And of course, science is a great ad adversary of the soul in the current age. Now I'm not anti-science. Science has delivered wonderful things for humanity. What I'm anti is scientism, or science becoming a totally dominating worldview, which looks for fundamental answers to everything. So with that introduction... Could, um, yeah. could I just add to that uh, another angle on it? Because uh, yep. as you've said, it's the battle for um, the definition of humanity and restoring mystery and, and that's definitely important I, I think there's another equally powerful angle it's actually the battle for a christ okay. um, and i think that like every great question if you ask a powerful question you've got to get a more powerful answer so i think the fact that our world is forcing upon us much deeper reflection on what it is to be human is actually going to we're going to discover christ more it, and, and we will have to, what we'll have to look at is what people have not looked at, which is the incarnation. Okay. Uh, and I just read uh, Richard Raw, whom some of you might know, who's um, American um, Franciscan, his daily meditation, which is quoted Jesus, human and divine. I just wanted to read a couple of paragraphs because it really will, it creates a whole lens on this, which is fascinating. He says, Francis of Assisi emphasized an imitation and love of the humanity of Jesus. 
without needing to first prove or worship his divinity. Um, in most of Christian history, however, we have emphasised the divinity and almightiness of Jesus, which makes following him largely unrealistic. We are on two utterly different planes that are rather hard to connect. A God who is totally other alienates humanity and creation. So it's almost like the emphasis on the is widened the gap between human and God. And I think the Protestant doctrine of total depravity or the Calvinist, it just widens that gap. He said, I, I doubt this will surprise you, but many Christians are not really incarnational Christians. That's not a moral judgment, it's a description. Many Christians simply believe in a supreme being who made all things, and that supreme being just happens to be Jesus. Um, he said they ignore the most concrete of Jesus' message, that power and powerless can and probably must coexist. Jesus is actually a third something, fully human and fully divine. This is hard for the dualistic mind to grasp or even imagine. It seems like an irreconcilable paradox. Um, for most Christians today, Jesus is totally divine but not really human. When we deny what Jesus holds together, we can't hold it together in ourselves, and that's the whole point. You and I are also children of heaven and children of earth, children of God and children of this world. The incarnation overcomes the split in us and creation. That's wonderful, but what I've always thought in this talk is the problem is our view of what it is to be human is too low. And thus we find it hard to imagine God being human. We get an elevated view of what it is to be human and the incarnation becomes that much more feasible. And so this is why this is a, this is a debate over what it is to be human or what it is to be Christ. And I think the power of, the, of your talk, Ron, and the way you think is that it just broadens our sense of the mystery of what it is just to be me, forget Christ. And then I say, wow, well, it's little wonder God became man. Thank you, Tony. Well, I think that leads very nicely into these two um, passages because uh, Psalm 8, which is written, of course, by David, has a very elevated view of what it is to be human, which we all know very well, but I'll read it in any case. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. Well, of course, Hebrews, of course, to your point, Tony goes on to quote, to quote this passage and then say, well, we see Jesus who fulfills it perfectly, but of course we are following in his uh, wake. And of course, it is important to know that the translation of verse 5 is controversial. Uh, many people will translate verse 5, and Ian Proven assures me it's correct. You made them a little lower than God, not a little lower than the angels. In fact, mm. in fact, the whole of Hebrews chapter 1 is we are superior to the angels. Yes, yeah, that's very true. 
I think Hamlet is also a, a wonderful uh, reflection on what humanity is like. Uh, again, a very well-known piece, but I'll read it in any case. What a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving how express and admirable, in action how like an angel, in apprehension how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Um, he knew how to turn a phrase, <laughs> Shakespeare. Um, this notion, how infinite uh, in faculty, struck me, uh, amongst many things in that passage also, that um, we all know that we've been told we're made in God's image. And we, I think we're always constantly surprised by what it is to think, how our thoughts operate, how other people's thoughts operate. Uh, it seems like a, a wonderful and mysterious thing, thought. So today I wanted to do a bit of philosophy uh, because there's been a lot of good thinking done about thought. The trouble is most of it is buried most of it has been buried by the materialist project of the last 300 years or 400 years. Um, I'd like to have a bit of a look at that history and also see where it's led. So we ended last week, or the, last, the talk last time, by this quote by Scottish philosopher Thomas Hobbes, who you can see lived 400 years ago. After the he was very much a contemporary of Galileo and Copernicus and already then he had concluded that this new scientific age led to this conclusion. Thus mind will be nothing but the motions of certain parts of an organic body. Is there any different, is this any different to neuroscience or modern psychiatry? I would challenge that not much has been learnt in 400 years or not much more has been proposed from a materialist, materialist point of view. Everyone's, everyone is just trying to solve that, uh, that mechanistic problem that our minds are just brains and they're organic bodies in motion. But Um, what I want to show is that there's been that there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of foundation to that claim and if if we do philosophy rather than just follow science we might fi find a different view and I think science, science of course has become the dominant philosophy of the age we don't realise it but we're all philosophers we're just materialists we've, we've become materialists we've been so convinced by the successes of science that it will ultimately deliver to us one day an explanation of what it is to be human as well. That deepest mystery which Shakespeare and David were searching after, it seems to us like science has almost got it in its sights. Not far off now. It's going to unpack it for us. Um, so how did we get started on this materialist road? Well Newton of course, he was a big uh, big help in that regard. You can see already 
Alexander Pope, quite a well-known poet, who lived a bit after Newton, would have been very familiar with all of Newton's successes, came up with this ditty, Nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, let Newton be and all was light. I think that expresses the spirit of the age that was starting to develop at that point. There was the, there's almost a, a, a mystical uh, worship of what Newton had achieved and already he, uh, most philosophers were heading down that path of believing that science was going to answer everything. Within a hundred years, the Marquis de Laplace had said, had come up with this advance of the Newtonian proposition. Uh, we're on slide five now. We may regard the present state of the universe as the effect of its past and the cause of its future. An intellect which at a certain moment would know all forces that set nature in motion and all positions of all items of which nature is composed, if this intellect were also vast enough to submit these data to analysis, it would embrace in a single formula the movements of the greatest bodies of the universe and those of the tiniest atom. For such an intellect nothing would be uncertain and the future, just like the past, would be present before its eyes. This is a pro proposition of the, the mechanical universe. The universe is made up entirely of atoms, acted on by forces, which will lead ultimately to an explanation in mechanical terms of every phenomenon we can experience, including the human mind. And this is, a, this is nearly 300 years ago. Again, I, I really like to stress, and it struck me, it really struck me, philosophically we haven't really moved on at all in 300 years. Of course, along came Charles Darwin and uh, some of the key foundations on which we base hope for a humanity other than a mechanistic one, which are expressed by those two of those verses in Genesis. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What does it mean to be created in the image of God if we're just atoms in motion? Genesis, then in Genesis 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. Well, what is a soul? in a materialist worldview. And I'd like, I guess what I'd like to propose is if we analyse what we believe about our souls and our interaction with each other, with God, are we confident that there is something still mystical and special and noble and grand about a human soul or do we believe that it's really just a biological brain that um, is no different to any other piece of matter that we encountered that we encounter and how is that affecting our faith how is that affecting our relationships our mental state our mental health 
Gilbert Ryle, who co coined the term the, the, the ghost in the machine, was early in the 20th century, early to mid 20th century. There is a doctrine about the nature and place of the mind which is prevalent among theorists, to which most philosophers, psychologists and religious teachers subscribe with minor reservations. You notice how <laughs> he groups philosophers, psychologists and religious teachers, not scientists, of course. Uh, although they admit certain theoretical difficulties in it, the doctrine states that every human being is both a body and a mind. Such in outline is the official theory. I shall often speak of it with deliberate abusiveness as the dogma of the ghost in the machine. I hope to prove that it is entirely false and false not in detail but in principle. It's pretty depressing, don't you think? In many, the scientific worldview. And I think, of course, mental, the whole question of mental health has become such a huge one in recent times and how do how does one uh, achieve uh, freedom from mental health issues or at least a happy functioning life I think it's a huge it's a huge topic in our generation and one that everyone has an interest in everyone knows people who are struggling with it many of us most of us will struggle with it to some extent in our lives at one time or another and partly I believe it's because we have a very low view of the mind a very low view of the soul and a very me mechanical mechanistic view and I guess what I want to do is try and show that uh, oh sorry slide eight I mean we can't, of course, deny that science is, is a very clever thing. It's a brilliant, brilliant edifice that the human mind has devised to manipulate the world and to create lots of uh, change. But this endless reductionism which it's involved in and which I want to talk about more in future talks, particularly when I talk about quantum physics um, A is le leading to a dead end and B is driving us back towards mystery so reductionism is actually not driving us towards answers it's finally it's actually now driving us away from answers and towards more questions because when we look what's down there we can't find anything yeah can I just make you you used a phrase an adjective, a couple of sentences back, I think is very, very important. You talked about the dead end. And what you said was an um, um, increasingly mechanistic view. Um, I think the depression is that mechanistic becomes deterministic, mm. which means I can't change it. Yep. Um, I think it's important for us all to recognise that, that um, logical sequence that if... If I am nothing but physical forces and physical forces determine everything, then there's actually nothing I can change. Um, the minute I start to believe in a soul, I've like put a driver back in the car, if that makes sense, because it's not to, not to deny that I might not, for instance, physically and chemically have certain issues that will contribute to 
or circumstance that can contribute to uh, depression, anxiety. But the soul is now the driver in the car. There's another sort of force. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what we know is that that force is actually a causative force because if it's made in the image of God, it's the source of intent, mm-hmm. not of mechanism. Yeah. And so I think what's happened is as a society, we've kind of lost the driver in the car, uh, yeah. lost intent, which, which is, um, as doubtless we'll talk about, intent is one of the things that they simply in cognitive science can't find because mm-hmm. logically speaking, intent is a totally anti-Newtonian concept. If everything is just yeah. bang, causes and effects, then there's no such thing as a cause of everything. Yeah. It's just knock-ons. Yeah, and so when you said that, I was thinking, yeah, that does explain, um, you know, a lot of almost the surrender of the power you've yes. got to drive yeah. the car, yeah. as it were. I think that's a fantastic point, Tony, and very well put. And I think also... You know, this is when we talk about a soul and uh, putting a driver back in the car, we don't just mean a Christian soul, of course, we mean a human soul. And that a human soul uh, has many ways and means of getting control back of its of yeah. a life. Uh, because every human being is made in the image of God and has those. Yeah. faculties, those divine faculties. And I think we'd all know an increasing number of books that are probably trying to put the driver exactly. back in the car. You know, one is I think you are not your brain or something like that. But, and, and I don't, they may be written by Christians, I don't know. Mm. But really it's, it's around the possibilities of uh, mental health with self-talk and, you know, discovering the resources within you and so on. And I think, you know, as when I was a very young evangelical Christian, I was threatened by them. Now I'd say... All power to you, and here's, here's the big story as to why you're right. Mm. <laughs> it's called Jesus and God. Mm. Uh, anyway, um, just quickly to just finish off the histo- history lesson before we start on the phil- philosophy. Um, when science really started to get hold of society and started to get going, there was this group of philosophers you can see down the bottom of slide 10. A whole list of names, some of the big names of 20th century philosophers. They formed this group called the Vienna Circle. Um, and they interacted with also lots of the big scientists of the time. And their goal, they became the, I would say, the cheerleaders of the scientists. Unfortunately, the philosophers gave up the ground and handed it over to the scientists and said, we can't fight it, we'll just join it. And they formed, they became what they called logical positivists, uh, who were just empiricists really, who became absolutely obsessed with driving everything but empiricism out of their worldviews. And empiricism or logical positivism basically states as they say there, any sentence that cannot be empirically verified is a nonsensical statement. So virtually anything important you want to say about life is no... It's nonsense. It's nonsense. Sorry, am I allowed to ask questions? Yeah, sure. Gerdel showed that there are no... that there are true statements that are not 
Well, he's, he's on the, he's on the, he's on the. yes, he is. <laughs> Could you just repeat the question? So oh, there are oh. question. The, I, I think the question is that uh, someone like Girdle, who is in that list, obviously didn't believe entirely in logical positivism because he was um, stating that it was impossible, basically, for everything to be described uh, empirically. And of course, all of them eventually had to admit to that position. Logical positivism is no longer a credible. Well, I mean, and Wittgenstein changed his mind in the second half of his life. Yeah, he changed his mind. So they gave up and said, we're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of them, are, of course, maintain the fight. Willard Van Orman Quine, he's probably the, the most um, persistent of the logical positivists. He's a... Uh, a philosopher of language. I might talk about him a little bit later on. But anyway, this group was basically only disbanded just before the start of the Second World War. And then they spread because most of them fled na the Nazis and uh, ended up in American universities, in English universities right throughout the world and continued to fight the good fight of positivism and empiricism. Uh, and one of them, Carnap, said this was his analysis. They were trying to eliminate what they called metaphysics. And metaphysics basically is anything that's not verifiable by physics. It's the underlying assumptions on which a worldview is based. But they say we well, can't have a worldview unless it's based purely on a reductionist physics. So love is metaphysics. If I use the word love, it's... That's metaphysics. Metaphysics. Yes. Mm. And, of course, what they found was pretty much the whole English language is full of unverifiable words. <laughs> so, it, it's, yes, it is. Uh, unfortunately, um, most language um, is unverifiable and therefore meaningless, if, according to the logical positivists. And everyone recognised... Everyone recognises now that that's nonsense, but the spirit of the logical positivism, I think, is still very prevalent throughout the world. Uh, in slide 11, it says, The development of logical positivism has, meant it has made it possible to give a new and sharper answer to the validity and justification of metaphysics. This positive result is worked out in the domain of empirical science. In the domain of metaphysics, including all philosophy of value and normative theory, logical analysis yields the negative result that the alleged statements in this domain are entirely, are entirely meaningless. Politics, morality, uh, religion, all meaningless. But it wasn't always like that. There was a great battle waged in, at the end of the... Um, or throughout the... 17th, 18th centuries between philosophers when philosophy was still regarded as a reasonable sort of vocation to enter into not one to be mocked at and I, I, just as another caveat I know Tony often wages uh, lyrical about the, um, the academy as it's called or the universities where everyone lives in silos and everyone's scared, scared about tenure and I have to say, the philosophy department is no 
different in a university. If you try and be a non-materialist philosopher these days, you're a very, very, you're in a huge minority, or a small minority, I should say. Um, and, you know, you're sort of very embarrassed about the fact that you might be an idealist and not a empiricist. And you know that nobody's going to take you seriously. So and you might not get a job. And you might not get a job. Um, but in those days, the, the best philosophers were actually the idealists. And Kant was the, he was the, uh, at the height, he was the end of the great idealist tradition in philosophy, just about the time that science was getting going. And we haven't really returned to the heights of Kant since that time, because empiricism has won the day. It's a bit, I suppose it's a bit like, um, you know, what Tony's been talking about, but in a different field. Augustine won the day as regards a particular type of world Christian view. Well, the empiricists won the day as far as a particular type of view about humanity and science. And many people say since Kant, all, all philosophy since, since Kant is just a footnote to his ideas because nothing new has been added to the debate since, since then. So let's do a bit of, oh, here's a bit of the count just to give you a taste of how this battle was going on at that time. Francis Bacon, early on, very early on, you see in just uh, 1597, he wrote a, a series of essays which were published. A little, a little philosophy inclineth man's mind to atheism. But, in, but depth in philosophy bringeth men's minds about to religion. And I think that's the problem. We're stuck in an age where there's a little bit of philosophy done by scientists and it's driving us towards atheism and a very dark, dim view of the soul. And nobody's thinking like they did 200 years ago about these grand themes and, and issues. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, a bit, late, a bit later, one of the great poets. Um, he had this view. Despite his enthusiasm, Coleridge didn't see science as the highest authority because it cannot answer questions of meaning or value. In 1804, he complained that, I have met with several genuine keen hunters after knowledge and science. But truth and wisdom are higher names than these. I am half angry for them prostituting and profaning the name of philosopher, great philosopher, eminent philosopher, etc., 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 to every fellow who has made a lucky experiment. I think that's a lovely <laughs> little summation of the difference between science and philosophy. In 1833, the year before he died, Coleridge attended the annual meeting of the newly established British Association for the Advancement of Science. During a debate on the proper title of Men of Science, he stood up and argued very strongly that experimental work is not philosophy. So these people should not be calling themselves natural philosophers. The term scientist was proposed by William Whale, Master of Trinity College, Cambridge, but it didn't go down well at the time. 
And I would argue it still doesn't go down well with scientists. They want to be philosophers. They want us to all believe their philosophy. Now, of course, I'm disparaging science, all scientists, but of course there are many Christian scientists, there are many Jewish scientists, there are many Muslim scientists, there are many uh, New Age scientists, probably. Not everyone has got on board this bandwagon, but it's very hard to speak out against it. Very, very hard to speak out against it. I mean, the perfect example, of course, is Dawkins, who's uh, a biologist. I understand his PhD was in chickens, which is fine. But um, now pontificating on philosophy, and if anyone has ever, if you haven't, you ought to have a look at the debate at Oxford University between Ryan Williams and and um, and Dawkins, which is moderated by the agnostic professor of philosophy. And like halfway through, they both have got to stop to sort of help Dawkins with Philosophy 101 because he's making such a fool of himself. Luckily, uh, you know, Ryan Williams is such a gentle soul, he doesn't kind of do a Bentley hard on him and crush him. But uh, the, the agnostic moderator was having to stop and say, uh, he really just couldn't let the debate go on. I mean, I'm sorry, look, you, you know, this was over 100 years ago. Let me explain a few things to you. But it, it, uh, yeah, absolutely, Tony, and and it's very it's very sobering that a Dawkins or a Hitchens are the voice of of the modern age. You know, anyone who tries to stand against them is roundly shouted down, almost abused, and belittled. But the the positive side is it. It's always, Christianity has always been right at the forefront of the battle of ideas. This is just our modern version of it. You know, when you read what, the context in which the New Testament is written, the context in which the patristic fathers lived, the more you understand what a debate, you know, they, they were, in, for them, literally a battle to the death often over ideas. And it, it was a philosophical battle. Yes. Oh, very much so. Hmm. So we're going to do a bit of philosophy now. Um, who's done philosophy? Any philosophy? Okay. I'm going to do very broad, very quick. We're going to try and cover about 300 years. And um, an undergraduate and a postgraduate degree in about 15 minutes. So if you see any holes, <laughs> please forgive me. The colour red. For those listening, slide 15, it's a square box of the colour red. What an interesting thing the colour red is. Within, within that box encapsulates the whole mystery of thought and what it is to be human. I'm, I'm going to try and explain to you how that is. We give it a name. We've actually differentiated it from every other thing in the known universe. Something's a little less red. We have to give it a different name. We've differentiated it again. It's pinky red. But it's, we've, we've started to s divide the universe up into things, from one thing to another. Put a bit of orange in it, we've got to give it another name. It's something else again. You see what we're doing as human beings? We're starting to divide the world up. We, and we make, a we make a conceptual category of all these things that share the same 
common characteristics. We call it color. We've just done something totally mysterious when we do that. How did we do that? How on earth did we come, come up with that classification and then unification? No scientific explanation for that. Let's try it again. Chair. But is that a chair? What a clever thing we're doing. That's a tree stump, but we can use it as a chair. We recognize that it's perfectly useful chair, perfectly handy chair. Is that a chair? Sculptures by the sea. Can be a chair. We've just made another whole category. We've divided the universe up into other things, into abstract concepts. How are we doing that? What's the scientific explanation for how we do that? How our minds do that? I've got a one-year-old grandson. He likes to play with ma matchbox cars. He calls them brum brum. <laughs> for the first time a few days ago, he walked into our lounge room and saw this painting. He pointed at it and said brum brum. He's 12 months old. He was 12 months old one week ago. How, can, how does he do that? It's astonishing. Yesterday he said that was Brum Brum. Today he said that was Brum Brum. He's, he's absorbing categories in a phenomenal rate. You better he, say, for the purpose of the listeners, there's a vacuum cleaner. Oh, a vacuum cleaner and a pool cleaner. A pool cleaner. And he's recognizing A, they're machines. B, they share common characteristics. They've got wheels. How's his mind doing that? And he's right. He's right. <laughs> but red is even more mysterious than that. Because it's got two, it seemingly has two separate types of qualities. It's got the sort of qualities that a scientist might be interested in, which is its its position on the electromagnetic spectrum. We speculate in science that color is part of the electromagnetic spectrum. It's a series of electromagnetic waves that have a certain wavelength and a certain amplitude. And they are actually only a very small part of the electromagnetic spectrum. You can see on the diagram on slide 28, it occupies a very small part of the, the, way, the band. Go up two spaces and you've got microwaves. But an interesting thing about this slide is the top part is, is very monotone, grey, colourless. We don't associate anything with those terms except for scientific terms. But you look at the spectrum and suddenly all sorts of things happen in your mind. There's a different sense of reality. Let me give you an example. Red becomes a metaphor. It becomes a symbol. Our minds start to do amazing things with red. It becomes a sunset. Beauty is part of the characteristic of red. It's no longer just a theoretical, unobservable piece of the universe, it's interacting with the human mind.
the visible spectrum is the only part of the electromagnetic spectrum that interacts with the human mind and from it we get art we get some we get beauty we get all these concepts which are which are absolutely only available in inside the human soul and the human mind not much happening in there it's producing part of the electromagnetic spectrum that's a microwave oven that's a microwave oven on slide 30 it can cook <laughs> that's about all we can say about it it doesn't evoke any sort of political philosophical emotional response in us what's happening what a mysterious thing the mind is and it's very mysterious because only those parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that we can physically experience in our minds ourselves take on this extra dimension this human dimension this very unmechanistic but very real dimension that we live with every moment of every day and is what makes meaning in our lives really everybody okay so far you're about a year and a half into a philosophy course now <laughs> here's the problem empiricists we're off slide 11 empiricists versus idealists Idealists want to say there's something actually happening there in the mind. There's a soul there, there's a mind, there's all sorts of interesting things happening. An empiricist wants to say, nothing, no, nothing to see here. There's physical sensory inputs impinging on a physical brain, which somehow is producing these unexplicable emotions. Uh, concepts uh, we well, haven't explained it yet but we will we just got to keep digging into the mind we got to just keep doing more and more neuroscience and we'll figure it out this is not a new problem John Locke of course isolated this problem one of the empiricists that I had up previous previously on a previous slide slide 32 he got the whole thing on that diagram you can see there's a visual image of a tree coming into the eye yeah it's passing through the brain passing through into the brain we can track it that far as empiricists but then what what happens to it how do we get all the things that an image of a tree delivers to us out of a brain so once again the empiricists want to say we're just going to keep looking in that brain just keep unlocking it and we'll find it he he identified two very interesting philosophy he, he identified two very interesting or he made a separation between these two things substances if you like and it's, it's a persisting, very difficult philosophical and scientific problem to this day. He called it primary qualities and secondary qualities. In the diagram of the um, electromagnetic spectrum, the, the description of the waves is the primary qualities. 
the experience of colour is a totally different thing. It's a secondary quality. What music is another very good example. And I think I had this up on my last talk. What's the difference between a Bach concerto, which is at the top, or Bach, I don't know if you wrote concertos actually, <laughs> a piece of Bach's music and traffic noise down the bottom. They're both made up of molecules of air in motion hitting the eardrum, but one comes out as something of great beauty, the other comes out as something of ear screeching unpleasantness. Have I convinced you yet? The truth of the matter is nobody knows what's going on inside the mind. We can talk about what goes in, but we can't talk about what happens once it's inside. The only one who really had a real go at trying to do that was Kant. He tried to pinpoint what thought actually was. And he came up with his four categories of the pure understanding. In a book he wrote, which is a big book, it's a very difficult book to read. It's called The Critique of Pure Reason. He wrote it in 18, 1781. He was already, I think he was about 70, 60 or 70 years old when he wrote it. Kant never went 40, more than 40 kilometres from his home in Germany. He spent a lot of time thinking about these things. And while these, of course, we can't say, oh, Kant nailed it. He figured out what the human mind, how the human mind works. What I think he did show, just like my grandson did, that there's all sorts of amazing processes going on inside a human mind which are not physical and cannot be explained physically. Um, just take the top left-hand one, unity. Could you explain the landscape, the rows and columns? I mean, he's got some kind of table there. Um, I'd be interested in perhaps you explaining what A, B, C and D across the top are and then what's one, two and three down the rows. Well, this is, these are... We'd be here for a long time. We would be, and it's hotly debated what Kant really meant by them all. He does explain them. But, um, obviously, A is quantity. So our minds can detect unity within diversity. They can detect plurality within uh, many objects, something that spans. You can pick out common themes within many objects or thoughts, not just objects. We'll get onto thoughts in a minute too. Uh, we can see when something is, uh, represents a total picture. I mean, I, I'm just speculating too, uh, but you can, it's more, I think, you go to B, quality. Our minds, it's more to show that our minds are doing all sorts of processes and um, systematizing, unifying, uh, ex experience is not just, um, uh, shall I say, computation, which is what the modern view of thought is. There's all sorts of non-computational elements to what a, a mind. So just to back that up, I mean, this is one of the, uh, I, I, in a way, a simpler way of 
talking about what he's saying is is the contrast between quantity and quality and um a colleague a friend of mine roger martin who's recently voted world's number one business thinker was uh, talking on strategic thinking and essentially how business is locked in quantitative thinking which is everything is spreadsheet but the minute you go to qualitative thinking you start to get into this ability of us to abstract further and further and further and further away from the concrete a bit like your grandson was doing intuitively Mm. and that abstraction is synthesis and that's where the big ideas come from as uh, that's what he was talking about strategy and innovation he was talking about product development that 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 People who are extremely creative, people who are very concrete, the more concrete you are, the less innovative you are. I just know from experience, if you're a concrete thinker, we've got no hope here. The world will continue as it is. The creative thinkers do what your grandson did. They abstract, and they also abstract in funny ways that you think, where did that come from? And you think, I get where that comes When he said broom broom, I mean... He's widened the category. So, so this ability to synthesize is what no one can get. No. It, there's no quantitative, it's not addition. As I go up a level of abstraction, I don't add things together and add, I, have, mm. I don't have a sum of them. I've got this emergence of, which is, as I tell people, you're getting close to God. Mm. Yeah, I, I would imagine you encounter that all the time in what you do, Tony. And it must strike you that there's a huge difference between those two two ways of thinking and last time I spoke a bit about artificial intelligence and how that works purely by computational methods and it actually has no relationship to how a human mind works well the interesting thing about what I just said you know I I don't have the time to do it now but I can point to example after example after example you can see the same thing James at work where you you're actually looking at the productive quality of the mind and the more I mean if you want to say you know what made Mark Zuckerberg what made Jeff Buzos what, what made people who forget their ethics build great innovative enterprises it's that capacity on the right hand side that Kant was talking about they were not concrete thinkers mm. the world was full of and so abstraction far from being a philosophical thing feeds productivity and the, our ability to manage the world around us I mean, imagination, you've often spoken about. Where does imagination come from? It's That's right. And I should, I should make the case, by the way, just to finish my, my views on this, is that actually you can't go... What, we're in the middle. If you go all up to abstraction, you become... You actually lose touch with reality and you've really got problems. Mm-hmm. If you go all the way down and you're a concrete thinker, you, you've got another form of insanity and you've got really got problems. It's the kind of people who can live in the middle mm-hmm. that... Yeah. combine the worlds which is close yeah. to what we're talking about yep uh, these days of course as I've said we're going to get there we've gone a bit further down from Locke once it goes in the eye we presume it goes down some neural impl- imp- impulse and then some sort of neural process will deliver all these wonderful thoughts that we have. It's assumed. But of course, as you can see at the end of that diagram on slide 35, 
There's still no insight into what consciousness is, none whatsoever. But either scientifically or philosophically or any other way, maybe religiously, there is. Now I want to talk about language for a minute. Because uh, this will come back to the point you've just been making, Tony, about being in the middle. We're in the middle, and the world seems to be seems to have been made in the middle. Because the world was made with things, objects, but it's also made with minds, and somehow the two are interacting. And I think language. There's been a lot of good philosophy done in the 20th century by philosophers of language. That's actually where philosophy is headed. Once the great idealist empiricist battleground petered out, philosophers of language took up the challenge of anti-materialism. A lot of them succumb to materialism and, and believe that language is just, of course, an outgrowing of, an, out, an emergent property of a human brain. But I would posit this to you, of course, thoughts were around long before there were brains, presumably. You wouldn't think that God needs a brain to think. He's quite capable of thinking without a brain, so there must be something going on there, non-physical. Let's just take a quick look at, let's do a quick philosophy of language course over 10 minutes. Take a simple sentence. The old woman sat on the most comfortable red chair to watch TV. Those arrows are pointing to various things in the pictures. But let's analyse that sentence a bit more. Or let's, let's jumble that up first. The red TV sat in the old chair to watch the comfortable woman. That sentence works, but it's a very strange sentence. And of course it's because we know that a red TV doesn't sit and it doesn't watch. So there's, there's all sorts of things happening in language. There's syntax and there's, there's syntax obviously. So the syntax still works in this sentence, but meanings are starting to get very strange. Of course, it's not far from there to poetry, because that's basic. Poetry is playing with this mysterious aspect of language. So you get a John Donne poem. Busy old fool, unruly son, why dost thou thus through windows and through curtains call on us? He's doing almost the same thing as what we just did when we jumbled up what seemed like a, a sentence that would work in the world with one that still works syntactically but doesn't really work in the world. Um, he's attributing all sorts of things to the sun which we know are not true. But it's very interesting because you can only have disorder. The fundamental category is order, not disorder. The fundamental category is I know what a sentence is and I know what order is. So I know the second sentence is surprising, which actually surprises me, but I know I'm surprised. Um, it wouldn't work the other way if there were no forms whatsoever. 
we didn't have any concept of form, mm. then form or disform would not surprise us. But it's actually coherence and beauty that lets me know when a surprise comes. Yes. Uh, also, that the unexpectedness of it sparks the imagination, which is a whole other realm to go into. Yes, yeah, very good point. You, you immediately can't avoid starting to think of what's a TV doing observing a comfortable woman. Yes. So your, your mind starts to go there. Yes. Just to repeat that, James is suggesting that uh, when we see unusual forms of language, it sparks our imagination and we start to see all sorts of interesting possibilities from that unusual form of language. Which yes, because what we're doing is we, it's a puzzle now. I'm not, I, I believe the second sentence must mean something. So I'm going to get a second order out of it, you know. So I, it's the drive to order the disorderly that drives the whole process just through iterations. But the second sentence does make sense in the modern world where TVs do actually have cameras. Okay. <laughs> and so it can actually watch. In fact, that's one of our big problems in, in our age. Is it's watching us. We don't know what's watching us. Um, so philosophers of language speculate that language is actually a map of the world. We attach a word to everything th we experience and that becomes like a hook into that concept and we can start to manipulate it using language. And the logical form of language maps the logical form of the world. So you can start, it's like a you know, shuffleboard, you can, you can grab a concept with the word and you can start to move it around just like we, we did then. But you can only do it according to certain syntactical rules because the syntactical rules map and reflect the way the world is structured and works. And our minds are the only things we know which are capable of doing that. How they do that, we have no idea. Another total mystery. It's an amazing mystery. Let's just finish up with philosophy of language. The top sentence is a sentence that obviously just doesn't work for that very reason. TV, the sat, old, the watch, comfortable, two, on, chair, woman, read, most. Same words. We know immediately that's, that's meaningless. Let's go back to our original sentence on the bottom. The old woman sat on the most comfortable red chair to watch TV. Now, philosophers of language, they divide that sentence up into various things. They say the world is made up of two types of things. One is reference and one is sense or meaning. Reference you can point at is something you can point at. Woman, TV, red, chair. The rest we've got a problem with. If we can't point to it, what is it? And this is, of course, the problem for a materialist worldview. There's so much out there that you can't point at, but it's there everywhere. So they categorize those sort of words as sense or meaning. And that exists inside the human mind. 
Sense or meaning is something that only we create and generate. And our language reflects that. If we didn't have any sense or meaning, all our communication would just be table, chair. There'd be nothing else. Uh, and there's another vector on this as well, which go, because so far the examples they have been given, uh, like Locke, is perceptual arrangement of reality in my mind, which is very passive. What's getting very interesting, which in Second Road we play with a lot, is this spooky, spooky fact that it seems it's going further. Language is creating reality, not just receiving reality. Mm. Um, so therefore, as an example, this is one thing where cognitive science is useful. Uh, they've done lots of research where you, if you ask people a question, like, you know, uh, how much do you intend to invest in the next 10 years? Uh, the question will vastly increase the likelihood of finding an answer and acting that way. So this is now where the brain has switched from the receiver to the creator of realities, which is getting spooky because it's actually saying language is, is not just... that. Like, if we now put our worldview in it, of driving the car, the soul isn't just diagnosing the world, it's actually making the world. Yes. Mm. Uh, which becomes for us, you know, more responsible and more creative. I mean, Lisa can talk about that more than many of us can in terms of how you use language to manage yourself and reality. And of course, to add on to that, of course, modern science speculates that human consciousness is active in creating reality mm. in quantum theory which is something we might talk about later too which if we were to go further uh, you know if we have an expansive view of the image of god we know god spake in genesis 1 and it emerged and we ha seem to have some minor reverberation of that capacity left in us mm. very much so Here's some examples of sense words, but no real reference. And how language hones in on very subtle differences in concepts, but which obviously can't be, they don't have a reference except in our own experience, in our own mind. If you start with the, on slide 40, this, start with the word annoyed, and you go up from there, angry, furious, apoplectic. These are all things that are very internal within a human mind. You can't point at something unless they're behaving in that way. They can be sitting in a chair and being apoplectic without you having any knowledge of the fact that they're apoplectic. But you ask them and they say, well, I'm apoplectic about that. It's a mental, purely mental state. Or you go back down the other way, displeased, inconvenienced, indifferent. And this is allowing us to s divide the world up very subtly into incredibly, um, mu well, subtle and f uh, fine tuning. I won't do the other side because it's the same concept. I spoke about philosophers of language. Um, well, 
and on the left you got on the right you got the the empiricists and the empiricists basically say that language is just something that you know an apes one day picked up a stick and after a while said stick and all the other apes kind of cottoned onto the fact that he was a stick and then as we evolved and became human beings we just started saying more and more words for various things the big problem with this is it leads and this is where neuroscience is driving it wants to make the whole world reference no meaning science wants to make the whole world into reference it wants to eliminate meaning and sense from the world it wants to say that sense or meaning is actually an illusion and that if we just dig deep enough into the brain into the neurons and into the synapses we'll be able to say a thing whatever it is causes thought and therefore meaning gets excluded and reference is everything and this is I think coming back to your point Tony that if you go too far one way you're um, which is what science is doing you're denying the reality of the world I just wanted to read what are the practical consequences of this some of the practical consequences well Tony's and James have mentioned a couple of very positive ones about creativity and imagination and it all stems not from reference but from from a combination of reference and meaning from what all the subtle things that go inside on inside our head I think I mentioned last time over the years I've been collecting because this has been a subject that's been of great interest to me ever since I started studying philosophy the mind and the modern views on it and of course depression is a, a huge issue in modern society the statistics are absolutely mind-blowing um, and of course depression is very much treated um, pharmacologically these days but from what I've tried to say and Tony's tried to elaborate on I think that's because we've completely uh, thrown the driver out of the car we've said there is no driver anymore we're we're fatalistic as a society about it we believe there's no way to attack the problem except through physical means of course as an individual when you're in that situation you're going to try everything you possibly can and I'm sure everyone who's uh, not just in a situation where they're they're depressed but anytime we face a challenge of any sort in life we're not just going to rely on uh, physical or pharmacological solutions we're going to mobilize that driver to try and help us um, this this was a, actually an article from Sydney Morning Hill back in 2006 12 years ago by it was about a doctor he's um hang on, dr. John I didn't even know how to pronounce his name properly Gerardini 
He's the head of the Department of Pharmacological Medicine at the Women's and Children's Hospital in Adelaide. You can Google him. He's a very strong advocate against medicating children, you know, if they're suffering from um, trouble at school or whatever the case may be. Um, this is what he said at that. It's almost 20 years since Prozac became the first blockbuster drug of the new generation of antidepressants that was supposed to lift mood through a subtle finessing of brain chemicals instead of the sedating whammy of yesteryear. But despite the huge volume of volumes of antidepressants prescribed, 8.4 million scripts were dispensed last year. That was in 2005. In Australia, in Australia, for the, for the six most popular drugs, specialists have been flying blind when choosing which drug to add to it, one that is having only partial success. For Dr. John Giridini, the US researchers' bullish assessment of their own results is typical of a general insistence in the specialty on talking up this slenderest of silver linings around the dark clouds of data. It's pure spin. They've gone through the wreckage of the results and said, what can we salvage? It's just intellectual, intellectually dishonest. It is possible, Giridini believes, that the remission of depression experienced by some of the participants may be a true reflection of the efforts of the drugs, but it is less of a stretch, he says, to think that these people who got better would have done so anyway. That is because the illness is widely acknowledged to resolve spontaneously and unpredictably in a high proportion, perhaps up to half of cases. We're still in the stage of wishful thinking that these drugs are going to help anyone who feels unhappy. Now, I am not, uh, of course, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or a medical practitioner. So, I, of course, am the first to admit I'm not qualified to speak on these matters. But I would propose that this spontaneous and un unpredictable, unpredictably high proportion who resolve spontaneously are actually just people putting themselves <coughs> back in the driver's seat and starting to um, use other methods besides those advocated by the pharmacological industry. I'm just speculating on that. So, human, the human mind is a far more complex thing than neuroscientists and scientists will have us believe, is my proposition. It's, it's what makes us in the image of God very much. We have God-like capabilities in that regard. We should mobilize those capabilities in everything we do and not be um, convinced by the spirit of the age that it's fatalistic, it's mechanistic. And um, this is a picture I put up last time. I think it captures a very nice, these thoughts quite nicely. Neil Armstrong walking on the moon in 1969. All around him you can argue it's, it's mostly reference. There's no meaning there. He's come onto a into an environment where there's, there's very, very little ref, uh, meaning. But in that one human being, he's brought all of those amazing things onto the moon, which never existed before. Mm -hmm. 
and which cannot be described physically. Ambition, determination, application, vision, persistence, patience, ingenuity, understanding, the list goes on. A human being is an amazing thing. And wherever a human being goes, the universe is changed fundamentally. You know, in many ways, you're reminded of Adam first stepping into the garden. Neil Armstrong's first man on the moon. Adam, first human being into the garden. Something fundamentally changed when that happened. So I'd just like to close, which you pointed out a few of these verses, Tony, from the Bible, which puts particular weight and importance on words. And it's interesting that the creative power of God seems to be depicted by language. It implies that, and, and if language maps thoughts, then God thought, of course, the world into being long before brains were around. God didn't need a brain to do all, to create the world. He did it with all sorts of faculties that he gave us, imagination, creativity, all those sort of things. And I would just challenge us all to ask, are we idealists or empiricists in our Christian faith? Have we been convinced that these sort of verses are true or false? Deuteronomy 8.3, I'll just read them out and that's the last slide. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And of course, the fruits of the Spirit love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Do we believe those things? Is our faith eroded day by day by believing a conflicting story? And I think, uh, if I'm honest with myself, I have to say, it seeps in all the time. It erodes faith and it erodes what we believe about who we are as human beings and who God is. So I just got a couple of thoughts to finish with, um, Ron, as you were talking, which, and then we can just stop and have some questions. Lisa, uh, I've got a mental block, the positive psychologist, Dr. Martin Seligman. Um, what I found interesting about his theory was that pessimism is a precursor to depression, that's his view, and pessimism is sort of mediated by language in childhood. Um, so, I mean, part of the so what of some of what you're saying is the power of language or how I declare to myself and others situations. Um, 
And I think that Christianity um, in its pure origins was very optimistic in its declaration of benevolence and providence. But I think the kind of sin-based uh, Calvinism has put a very negative naming over things. And, and I think that we should be declarers of hope, light and the good in the world, predisposing the world towards a benevolent diagnosis of any situation. Um, because I, we go through bad situations in life. How am I going to interpret that as God's judging me or, or, or in a negative way? Or am I going to interpret it in a positive way? So I think um, that's enormously important this, in terms of driving the car and, and the capacity for blessings to come out of our mouth or cursings is something. I actually... I think I've said this before that you know when we were going through a difficult time with some of our kids when they were going through the dark teenage years, Anne and I would sit and whinge about this particular one of our four children, um, and I, I just said we've got to stop talking like this because even though this person's not in the room, I think it's having an effect. We have to declare hope even when they're not there. Um, that was that was one thing I was thinking of when you were talking and. The other thing is that increasingly, I think, um, we're in between idealist and empiricist. Um, and I guess it's dawning on me more and more that we're joining heaven and earth. Um, on the one side, uh, I am thinking I'm actually uh, drawing in sensory inputs which require eyes and touch and feel earthiness. On the other side, I've got this conceptualising ability and I seem to join them. Mm. And I seem to be the only creature that does join them. I don't think the angels do. I don't think God does. And so, uh, in a sense, it's wondrous that we do, because when I die physically, I, I lose the brain and I lose the mind. And, 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 and this fusion between... Um, uh, whatever, I, I haven't yet come up with the metaphor of the intertwined fusion between the physical and the metaphysical, which is us, mm -hmm. um, yes. is very powerful. I, I, um, I'll finish with the article I told you about, which I found since we began talking by a man called um, Adler, Mortimer Adler. He uh, is, is from a, one of my intellectual heroes, well, the group he was from, University of Chicago, mid-1950s, a group of philosophers who... There was a dominant big battle over the University of Chicago, which has fascinated me forever. It was the premier intellectual institution in America, and it was the battle for the universal curriculum. Anyway, Mortimer Adler was one of the humanities guys. He was the editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica and so on. D died as a very old man, but one of those American intellectuals who's so famous he's on TV a lot. And um, in this book, he's got this speech he gave. Merely he puts it as an, an appendix on how to actually, if you're giving a speech, lay it out. But And he reprints the whole speech to show if you're ever giving a speech, here's how you lay it out. Interesting thing is, and the guy's a human humanity scholar, it's a speech given in 1982 to the American Association of Neurological Surgeons on exactly what we're talking about. If I open up the brain, is there a mind? And uh, it is so fascinating. I, 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 
it, it, it's it's um, so he says um, he he was an agnostic for most of his life and converted to uh, Christianity in the last decade or so of his life. He said, "I'll give you two polls." It's so brilliantly, clearly argued. On the one side is artificial intelligence. And he said on the other side is angels. And you don't have to believe in angels to follow my logic, he says. I happen to believe in angels. I think they're very real. <laughs> but he so brilliantly argues we're, we're striding between angels and the material world. And only we fuse them, and it's it's if uh, it's if anyone wanted a copy of it, I've only got one copy here. I'll have to run copies off later on. But uh, so clear in his laying out of exactly what we're talking about. Uh, we'd add more stuff. Um, just finishing off one last thought, which I was going to mention, and you jogged my memory uh, as a speculation. You could, if you want to carry this sort of reference and sense metaphor a bit further in in a way in a sense god eternally past was sense he created the universe to as a reference of himself so that he could project all his attributes and characteristics externally and onto something god has sense and meaning the created order is the reference mm -hmm. and we're in the middle in order to bridge between God and creation yes. sense and reference yes. which is why we we are a bundle of brain and mind mm. that's a good place to stop yeah. <laughs> any questions comments criticisms so what we're going to do with the questions is, so we get them on the tape afterwards. Gordon. Okay, the question is, as you were talking, one of the things I've been watching is the way that scientists or the, the society is trying to transform gender. Gender is being, and they're using language, they're using all sorts of things which you know, come up against me all the time, but I can't see what they're doing, but I can hear it in from what you're saying. Right. To be honest, I'm not quite sure I understand what you're driving at. The, there was a statement that you made uh, about five minutes ago, which triggered this, because I've been watching, I've been watching the way that society is now becoming... You know, looking at the whole aspect of gender, whether a person's male, whether they're female, it's sort of, it's, it's no longer, it's no longer one or the other. There, there is a mixture that's going on, and it's like the, the mixture that's, that's occurring because of our philosophical reasoning that, that's, that's, that's somehow gone crazy. Um. I'm not sure I want to buy into that one. <laughs> and I think mainly because I don't think there's any differentiation uh, ultimately in God's mind between male and female except in a very physical, uh, specific way. Um, 
Male and female, he created them, both in the image of God. So I don't know how useful it is to really... No, but perhaps what... I, I agree with that, but I think perhaps what Stuart is saying, uh, sorry, Gordon is saying, is this more... We can just... We, we can name and rename the world in ways that are healthy or unhealthy. Okay, yes. Um, and we need to be, therefore, very careful... You use the example of gender. There can be other examples we could use where we start to twist things. And I would say when that becomes a social situation, we're changing the grammar um, of meaning. And when you change the grammar of meaning, things get very dangerous. Um, You could do it. I think, you know, to me, just leaving that example, the greatest literary exposition of this is 1984. Uh, where George Orwell created a society that changed the meaning of words. And the, and this was a political movement to shrink thinking and control people. Now, he did it because of what he saw was happening in his version of communism, but it's so chilling to hear the president, president of the United States, fake news, etc., because there's this changing of categories, a brazen amoral changing of categories that is really scary. Um, and I guess all that I think what you're, the, the corollary I think of what Ron is saying is, because what we've left out of this is the, is the view of sin, I, I believe we still have the faculties, but now they're available for demonic evil forces rather than for good, you know, and we still have the power of creativity, but it can be extremely used for bad. So the nature of truth and understanding becomes vastly more important in the context of what Ron's talked about. Sorry, Lisa. Uh, just hang on, Lisa, because what, if we don't record you, then no one who listens to the questions will know what on earth we're talking about. Um, yeah, as someone who's obviously reading a lot of the psychological research and dealing with patients daily, I think one of the examples of how our society uses language which has reinforced that materialistic basis is just the mental illness that instantly implies that depression is physiological primarily, which isn't what the research says anyway. And I was reading um, that great book, Wrong. I don't know if you've read it by David Friedman. John Stackhouse references it in Need to Know. And it goes through different... um, It's by a statistician who goes through different medical research and... Um, the proportion of it which is actually not replicated and (laughs) not affirmed. Um, And I've lost my train of thought. Um, I I think it's a great thought in that the very word illness is uh, prepackaged to imply that... Yeah. Oh, that's right. I remember now. So in Wrong, he points out that the proportion of psychiatrists, so we to to categorise mental illness, we have a, a book, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, um, that the proportion of psychiatrists who were involved in how do we categorise mental illness who were um, being paid by pharmaceutical companies was 100%. So the um, how do we conceptualise 
depression, anxiety, it's, it's all geared to this really physiological, materialistic basis. And yet we know that what works in terms of treatment is, I always say to people, you've got a one in three chance, if that, of an antidepressant working. One in three will be placebo, one in three it just won't work, and one in three you may get some benefit, but the side effects may well peter out anyway. But we know that what really works to promote mental health is a really holistic approach we do you have to look at the lens and the narrative as you were saying tony through which you see life you do have to address the physiological but you have through exercise through um, relationships through social through getting people moving through motivation through that intent like this big picture holistic addressing how do you manage the difficult emotions of a fallen world that and if you don't look at mental health in that big picture way that you actually don't make progress very few people just put on medication really make progress. So I'd 100% agree with the direction that you're heading there. Well, that's, I mean, it's great that uh, there are practitioners in the room who are experiencing these things, you know, day to day. And uh, I think that, um, do you find, I guess my question is, do you find it hard to speak in that direction in, yes. in that well are you you know are you regarded as a bit of a freak um in the psychological world i think it's it's acknowledged but you know people are referred to me by doctors and doctors have this very medical model and so um there's i'm always a little hesitant to caution people about any sort of medication because I'm up against the force of the whole medical fraternity. Uh, And in psychological research, I guess a, a similar thing is quantitative versus qualitative research where I'm about to start some, I know I've been speaking with others in the room, about to start some qualitative research. I'm at the University of Sydney doing my thesis and it's really looked down on. It all has to be quantitative. It all has to be stats. Um, and so, yeah, it's slightly different, but a similar idea that, that we're, we're a little tiny corner. <laughs> um, another interesting article that I read recently was by a, a psychiatrist in Palestine, and she was talking about mental illness among Palestinian people. And she was saying, you have these Western categories that, that PTSD is a mental illness. She said, look at where we're living. Look at the context. Look at the brokenness. Why are we lumping this on as some physiological illness? This is, she didn't quite use this language. She said, we are people struggling in a fallen world. Of course, we're getting symptoms. Of course, this is, this is really difficult. Why do we have to label it a mental illness? I thought it was really interesting, not from a Christian perspective, but just from someone immersed in the brokenness and not wanting to diagnose and label. Yes. Thanks for that. That's really good. Mark, while I'm going across to Mark, I have to say that um, if you've ever played golf with Ron, you'll know what a hypocrite he is because he has such a dark view of the world, um, it only lasts one hole. And the minute he he hits a bad shot, he says, "Tony, why are we playing this game? This is this is a ridiculous game. Why did you ever get me to play this game?" I said, "Ron, it was just one bad shot." No, I'm going home. I'm, I'm finished. <laughs> That's not an exaggeration. Okay, okay. I'm sure all the golf players out there know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm going to stand up. 
Um, this connection between mind and the physical brain uh, is still the mystery in, in the whole subject, in the sense that uh, if I were to take you into the operating theatre and drill a hole in your head and keep on poking hot needles, and this has been done unfortunately, uh, the person who comes out is not Ron Weinstock anymore. We know that. We've done that. And that's, that's, uh, that's one of the difficulties we face. I'll leave you to continue that story. Very much so. I think that's a really good point uh, and one that scientists will always throw up as, um, you know, this is where neuroscience is making breakthroughs. It's, uh, and, and to Tony's point, I think we are very much a mysterious uh, meeting of sense and reference in a, in a way uh, where the divine meets the physical. Uh, there's no, of course, denying that a brain is necessary, a, fu- a well-functioning brain is necessary for a human being to function properly. Um, beyond that, neither the neuroscientists or the idealists can say much more about the subject, as far as I know. Yeah, I, I want to add to that because I've actually been blessed of late uh, by going down exactly that track. Uh, what I mean is that perhaps as a younger Christian, I think I had the metal, the best metal model we can have is like water in a container. So I've got this soul in a body, you know, and there's just complete demarcation. And if you have that kind of mental model, um, of course, exactly what, Mark, you have talked about, or let's just say old age, let's say amnesia, let's say... Dementia. Dementia. I mean, we know that we lose the faculties of thought. So it's definitely uh, entwined. Uh, the interesting thing is um, if you go down, if you then extrapolate to say, well, <clears throat> all thought is therefore merely physical, it's, it's absolutely uh, unconvincing and, and doesn't work. If you go up the other way and say all thought is metaphysical and doesn't need the body at all, your examples, Mark, or you know me watching my parents grow old and lose their faculties, that doesn't work either. And actually, that's what I meant, we're in the middle. And that's why the resurrection's bodily and we get new bodies. It's, uh, um, and, and even the distribution of thought, I mean, Descartes, whom you mentioned, Descartes tried to isolate uh, the pure, pure reasoning <laughs> that was completely um, unconnected to any physicality. So he, he began to get rid of the imagination. And very interestingly, in this article, where he's talking about angels, he says the, you know, the, the categories he says angels don't have would be the imagination. You think about it, that's my ability to conceptualise image. That, re- that relies on sensory. So... It's, 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 it's not as if it's either or. We're, we're, we're entwined in the middle. And um, he, he said, um, angels lack, he talks about, um, 
as possible beings, angels are purely spiritual. Um, our interest in them here arises from the fact that they are conceived as minds without bodies. So this is now gets interesting. He says, well, what's it like? Would it be like to have a mind without a body? And he says, as minds without bodies, angels know and will and love, but not in the same manner that we do. So he gives to them some faculties. Their lack of bodies has a number of striking consequences. This gets very interesting. They do not learn from experience. Because to learn from experience means I have to be involved in treading around in the world and stubbing my, you know, stubbing my toe. And Secondly, they do not think discursively, for they have no imagination and memories. Well, memory is probably a physical thing. So um, their knowledge, which is intuitive, derives from innate ideas implanted in them at the moment of their creation. So there's been no learning. They speak to one another telepathically without the use of any medium of communication. Their minds, which are infallible, never go to sleep. Now, he's just speculating, but that's really interesting that there are these capacities for thought that we treasure that they don't have. And, and so this is this middle ground where we seem to draw together sense and reference, yes. only us, uh, which is fascinating because, as, as we've also said, he, God has not therefore given to the angels the right to rule the world. Because they, they they're not part of the no. world. Just to and just to add to that thought and to pick up more on what you're saying, Mark. If we speculate about the next life, or what that's going to be like, presumably uh, we will have some knowledge of what went on in this life. So memory, you would hope, of something passes on. So memory can't just. This is a Pure speculation. Memory can't just be part of the physical brain because otherwise we would start as newborn babes again in the next life. What's the point of ever having gone through this life if we can't take anything through into the next? Uh, so I think that's an indication of how mysterious it really is. Um, and our personalities are formed through all the experiences of these lives. Presumably we take those through. Unless you have, you know, a lot of the talks that have occurred over the last couple of years have been a, a speculation of the fact that the next life is, is going to be a glorious continuation of this one, not the old playing harps on wispy clouds kind of thing. So if we do believe that there's going to be a real continuation, even though we see people deteriorating from old age and losing memory and so forth, you would imagine there is going to be some sort of restoration and that that restoration will somehow salvage things that appear to have been lost because of the deterioration of the brain in this life. I'm interested in Polkinghorne when he... Uh, yes, yeah, Polkinghorne talks about how each of us are unique patterns um, over the course of our lives. We're unique in the universe. And yes, that can be marred and damaged, but there, there was that pattern. It has existed. Yes. And it just seems like that little clue to something that stretches into eternity. Yes. Yes. Um, and he has another great analogy, which 
Not sure how this fits with what you're saying, Ron, but Polkinghorn says God's going to take our software and then in the sleep of death put it onto his temporary hardware and then we'll have a, a new permanent resurrection hardware that he'll transfer our software back onto. <laughs> yes. Until we get an Apple upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, his branch of philosophy, and I don't know enough to fully unpack it, but he's into critical realism. I don't know if you can comment on that, but that always struck me as a lovely concept. Critical realism. Well, I'm not that familiar with it, to be honest, but I would speculate that it's in opposition to naive realism, which is the prevailing scientific view. Naive, naive, naive realism. And Kant called his philosophy critical philosophy, uh, which meant it was... He called his philosophy transcendental idealism, where what was really transcendental was the mind. Uh, the physical world was um, what we interpret through the mind. So I, I would think what Polkinghorne is getting at is that there's no such thing as naive realism. What, we're ex what we experience, what we speculate on is... Um, uh, all after it's been processed by this wonderful thing we have called the mind. Mm. So, um, I, uh, it's been a wonderful journey. I'll just... Uh, <laughs> I've done well. I, I, I'll just throw you something to meditate on uh, to blow your mind, which is Revelation chapter 5 which you should read in conjunction with the last verse of Revelation chapter 4. And you can read it all through the lens of what we're talking about. Uh, end of Revelation 4 is the first prayer of the elders. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and wisdom and honour and power. Why? Because you created all things and by your will they exist and have their being author of existence. Immediately, chapter 5 says, I looked and in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, there's a scroll written inside and outside. And then he heard a mighty angel say, who is worthy to open the scroll and read it? And it says, no one was found in the whole of the created order, in, in the earth, under the earth, in the heavens, who was worthy to open the scroll and read it. And to me, that is a picture of that scroll is the meaning of life. It's the, it's the text of life, the mystery of life, and held in the hand of God, the, 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 the clue to creation, held in the hand of God. No one can, can read it and no angel can read it. A man's got to read it. A human being has got to read the text of life. And so it says he wept bitterly because there was no one found. And the angel said, fear not, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the seal and to read it. And then you get see the wonderful picture of Christ, the Lamb of God. It's a wonderful way of finishing that he has unlocked uh, the mystery um, of the book of what makes us 
tick and the world ticked. And it had to be a human being who had to open the book. Let's finish there. Thank you.